Welcome, friends, and this is the next episode of This Can't Be Autism. I am your host and resident autistic, Doug Sybeck, and thank you for being here. Uh, this one is going to be another rambling uh, just monologue, as you've come to know and love, but it's going to be a little special, I think, because it's going to be something that I like to do. It's going to be about gifts. More, probably more specifically about autistic special interests, but in general, we all have gifts. This is not to say we all have a little bit of autism, because that is blatantly wrong. We don't. Uh, autism is a special neurotype uh, that you are born with, and it happens to evidence itself through certain uh, characteristics, uh, one of which is you tend to have certain special interests that a person can focus on, usually to the, uh, at least in the moment, the extent of everything else. They can hyper-focus on something, and that actually is a good thing. I think it is a gift. Now, whenever we talk about gifts, we usually mean talents in this context. Uh, everybody does have their own special talents. Some people can, you know, run fast. Some people do math very well. Others are very compassionate. Others can empathize. They're very caring. You're very good with animals. You've heard the term of like horse whisperer, where they just have some intuitive understanding of another creature and can uh, generate that connection. For autistic people, we often have. Uh, in our special interests, a uh, subject matter of some people. I happen to like ancient history. I'm not going to say that I am an expert about things, but I do like them. Uh, I do study it a lot. I am a late diagnosed uh, autistic person. So growing up, I mostly was just weird. That's how it was. I was socially awkward, if not inappropriate, because I would feel the need to sort of relate whatever the topic of the conversation was to a factoid that I might remember and like. Uh, you know, something along the lines of something maybe uh, the late great divine emperor Augustus Caesar would do, or liked, or anecdotes of those, or certain lines from a book I would like, because that is another one of my uh, interests, is books literature, reading. A peculiar quality of this special interest of mine, however, is when I mention it, is a lot of people expect me to have read basically everything under the sun. It's like, oh, how about this? Do you Have you heard of this book? What about this author? Do you like them? And I will invariably say, nope, I've never heard of that book. And in my defense, I will have to say, because there are billions of book titles out there, especially with the proliferation of self-publishing, but if you go into any bookstore, you will see there's just a lot. And I happen to be probably too critical. I would say it's discriminating, but I always look for something that's a little different. Something that... How would you say it as that X factor, not to paraphrase a TV show? Uh, I usually do get caught up by the cover and a title. So whenever people hear 
uh, or say that phrase like you can't judge a book by its cover, I usually cringe because I think about all the poor uh, cover artists in publishing houses who make their living just desperately trying to get people to (laughs) judge their books by their covers, hopefully in a positive way in, in their cases. But I do look at the cover, and then I also look, read the first line. I get in there. If there's a prologue, I will say I do skip prologues. I, you have to have a really good reason or setup for a prologue for my taste. Otherwise, it should just be chapter one. Uh, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of prologues. I don't understand what the specific need is apart from their regular development in chapter one. Sometimes they work. I say more often than not. That is another literary opinion. Please come at me for it, because I would love that debate. But as I said, I normally read the first line. I see how it goes. Does it draw me in? Does it make me want to read the second line? And then, I do something which... Uh, I have heard on occasion, but not too many times, is I'll go read the last line. I can almost tell you, the last line of the book will probably not spoil the ending. Just whatever the climax and conclusion, the denouement, beautiful word, nobody ever uses it. Very few people actually even put it in their books nowadays, but, um, as a technique, but denouement, it does not get really ruined by reading the last sentence of a book but that's what I like to read does that last line sort of resonate, does it hit me, does it punch can I, does it make me just go, huh yeah if it does, then uh, I'll, I'll pick up the book and more often than not with this test is I am not that disappointed with it Oftentimes, I will like them if I wind up reading a book because somebody recommended it or I'm required to do it and it doesn't pass these tests, there were often times where I just, I will find it disappointing. So uh, that is one of my special interests is books and reading. So no, I do not actually read a whole lot, a lot of authors and things. And that is why is because I tend to be a little bit, I would say, discriminating. Part of that also is, is as I'm getting older, is I read very slow. Now, I did read a lot as younger, and I would often read my other uh, uh, special interest of ancient history. I would go through and read translations of all the Latin historians, Suetonius, Cassius Dio, all the others. I would read Caesar. I liked Herodotus. I would read about the Peloponnesian Wars. I... the Punic Wars as well is very fascinating for me. Um, at the time, I always took them at face value. It was like, oh, this is honest. They're historians. I would only sort of start to doubt because I would read the back of the book and I'd notice that Herodotus was not only called the father of history but also the father of lies because of his blatant biases and, and uh, just making up of things and twisting sort of history to suit his purposes for whatever the time is and it never occurred to me that people would do that um this might be a good segue to start saying that i find autistic people whenever we are said we don't lie or we cannot lie 
much like the Vulcans in Star Trek or the Mimbari of Babylon 5. Um, I do like science fiction, by the way, if you can tell by these references. I am, in, uh, I am on uh, TikTok as sci-fi writer, even though I don't publish very much. I do like sci-fi and I do enjoy writing it. Uh, by these uh, references, uh, you might guess that autistic people can't lie. Yes, we can. I just have always told people I'm not smart enough to lie. It does not occur to me at the time in general to lie. I actually have to almost plan ahead and plot it out if I need to do something for a specific purpose because that's what you would do. If the, if the situation requires it, like I know somebody's going to get hurt if you say something a certain way, uh, that's why I really dislike people who say, I'm brutally honest. No, that just means you're cruel. You just don't care enough about a person to actually have the tact to put things that are still truthful and yet minimize the emotional viciousness of saying something to somebody. Um, and I think that autistic people, when they say that they uh, can tell the truth or don't lie, uh, are that way. It's like they don't, we are very empathetic. That is one of our gifts. Uh, we often have a hard time expressing it because that is part of our communications, which uh, admittedly is not a gift. Uh, it is. It was very difficult for me as a child to convey things because as I would read all these ancient historical fictions, I want to uh, convey something. Conveniently, now that I'm trying to find some stupid little fact or clever little thing I would read, uh, I can't think of one now to actually relate to you as an example. And that just happens because most of my history is, is blocked out. I do remember spending basically every Saturday in the bookstore finding these ancient books and trying to find new ones because I had actually read them. I know I had read... Um, this was much later, not as my, not as growing up when it came out, like Colleen McCullough's series about Julius Caesar, because I loved that ancient history. I loved the story. Uh, long before I should have been able to, uh, this would have been probably like junior high school even, I would go through uh, I, Claudius by Robert Graves. Loved the story. Found it fascinating, the drama, the whole soap opera of it was amazing, and I would try to find the references and the history to back it up, like, of the Battle of Actium, what actually happened, uh, go and get the nuances of things, it's like, I would start to realize, it's like, huh, did Cleopatra actually commit suicide, and think, hmm, Augustus may have allowed her to, but he more likely had her killed because, and then I would start listing off and trying to think through the reasons for that. Um, keeping her prisoner wasn't very expedient because then she could have found supporters and tried to make a war, much like she did against her with, uh, in the war with her brother husband and enlisted Julius Caesar to help her get power, and that caused a whole world of hurt for the whole Mediterranean world. Um, if he had just executed her, he would have um, probably had encountered the secret opprobrium, I guess is the word, or 
just disapproval of a lot of the Roman citizenry, the the high society, because basically he killed a woman and a monarch who was his prisoner. The Romans were rather fastidious about things. They were exceptionally superstitious. Aha, I found one. Actually, as an example of superstitiousness, is one of the Claudians during the uh, Republic was uh, a Claudius, probably a Tiberius Claudius, was charged with uh, raising a navy and scouring the Mediterranean to get rid of pirates. These were perennial problem for the Roman world. They weren't very good sailors. They didn't have a very big navy. So pilots, pirates <coughs> from like North Africa or Sicily or um, along the, uh, the the Lebanese coast or in Greece or something constantly raided shipping and, and would cut off grain and steal gold supplies as well as kidnapped rich people and ransom them. That was a story that happened with a young Julius Caesar, too. But this Tiberius Claudius was given the charge of, you know, clear out some pirates for the time being. Start making our shipping lanes safe so we can buy grain and feed the people. He went out there. He has them. Now, the Romans were exceptionally superstitious. They didn't do anything without taking omens, finding signs, portents, trying to figure out the will of the gods in what they did. They literally did this every morning when they got up. It's like, what's the day going to be? You think people today are superstitious when they read their horoscope or try and draw a rune or check a tarot card? These, these, the Romans would put them to shame with what they did with this. They had a special kind of priests called augurs whose sole job was to look for these signs and portents. Sometimes and often what they would do is if they was an animal sacrifice, which was happened way back then to the gods, they would deliberately look for the will of the gods and say, hey, should we do this? All right, let's sacrifice an animal to the gods, maybe one in particular, maybe just fortune uh, or just um, the amorphous concept of deities, gods, you know, the, the... sort of supernatural forces that direct and guide oversee lives in general. And then read the organs, like check the liver, the heart, see if there are any signs in this. Uh, one of the cheap and easy down and dirty ones that they had aboard the ships was sacred chickens. The Romans, ironically, I don't think, ate chicken, much like Hindus don't eat cows. Now, chickens were sacred to the goddess of Venus. And so they would have a cage with some chickens in it, and markings were on the floor of the cage, and the auger priests would toss in some corn or grain or something and note how the chickens were eating. And this would give them an idea of of what the gods would say, somewhat like a Ouija board. Chickens are pecking at no, the gods are telling you no. Well, Tiberius Claudius sees the the pirate fleet and is like, all right, we're getting ready for battle. You know, all preparations. Make ready. Everybody to the battle stations. Well, part of the battle stations was the augurs instantly started taking the signs. And they reported to him, you know, Commander, we can't have a battle today. The signs are very bad. The sacred chickens won't eat. This is a very bad sign. We can't do it. They just won't eat. Now, Tiberius Claudius had been sailing around for months and was hot-headed 
he grabbed the box with the chickens in it and said, well, if they won't eat, let them drink, and threw it overboard, drowning all the sacred chickens, headed off into battle, promptly lost, destroyed his entire fleet, thousands of Romans died, and but he made it back to Rome as a consul and senior patrician. And the crowd was willing to tear him to shreds. Literally, just rip him with their bare hands, his flesh apart limb from limb. The only thing that saved him, uh, not even his patrician status uh, as a, an aristocrat or uh, the noble or an elected consul, or nothing saved him except for the fact that his sister was a Vestal Virgin, a woman consecrated to the goddess Vesta, who was sacred to the city of Rome. Um, her person was what they call inviolate. Nobody could actually touch her unless she said so. Uh, to do so, even bump into her, she could immediately have them executed. This was how profoundly sacred and superstitious they believed a consecrated woman was to the goddess. Well, his sister was one of these Vestal Virgins, so he just hung around with her in a chariot in his cart and drove through the city yelling at the people that, you know, the idiots should have been there. We could have destroyed them if it weren't for these superstitions. So these are the little tales that I would thoroughly enjoy and would tell people, much like I do now, when they have nothing to do with the topic. We're talking about gifts, people's talents, and how they should be used. I'm going off telling you about an ancient Claudian screwing over the gods and getting his comeuppance. So this is one of my special interests and gifts. Thought I got lost there, didn't you? No, I didn't. So that was a finally a good example of that, of what I can do and my interests and what I remember. And a lot of autistic people have really specific gifts and talents for organization, for noting differences, for pattern recognition or something. And I have a feeling our society cannot handle those. Because our society, the American, the United States, our economy mostly, for the most part, cannot accommodate even neurotypical people's special interests and talents very well. Everybody is sort of crammed into certain jobs of what they need to do to make a living. It is very difficult to find something um fulfilling that you do. Most people just work for a living. When uh, I mean, traditionally, there used to be three professions. Medicine, law, and engineering. And again, those go back to probably the ancient um, uh, times, even before Rome, Greece, but certainly Rome, of you could be a doctor, where you had to learn special stuff to be in medicine. Lawyer, certainly that's a Roman thing, because they were all about laws and order, and you would just make a law about things. In engineering, because they were rather clever. They never had any math much higher than geometry. I mean, you could, I mean, basically, fifth grade geometry was really all the ancient Rome had, and look at all that they built between, you know, aqueducts and coliseums and roads that spanned uh, from, you know, the English coast all the way down to the tip of Italy. They just did very well with what they had. Um, but nowadays, 
Everybody says, well, I have a career. Well, if you weren't in medicine, law, or engineering, you didn't have a career. You didn't have a profession. You had a job. And then we had artisans, craftsmen, people who did certain things. A lot of that translated into guilds, which now we have as unions of like electricians, woodworkers, uh, stonemasons, plumbers, things like that. These people, these craftsmen, are in high demand because nobody does them anymore. We would look down upon these things. These aren't the neurosurgeons. These aren't the computer engineers who made the next great app. These aren't the sommeliers who can tell you what wine you should drink. These aren't the fashion designers who tell uh, the rich women or rich men actually to what to wear. They would often look down on because they worked with their hands. These were craftspeople. Uh, a lot of other craftsmen or guildsmen are artisans, uh, like potters, jewelry makers. Uh, we used to have watchmakers, but now we don't really have watches so much, even though uh, I think it's horology. There's a collection of fine watches, which is really expensive hobby. You can buy a Philippe Patak or whatever it is, a, a content. I can't even pronounce the names because they're all French and European and I don't even want to try anymore. Uh, of like $100,000 US for a handmade watch. And they're amazing technical things. Um, but again, that sort of craftsmanship, even tailoring, if you have to go and get your, like, get a well tailored suit or something in the United States, it's most likely a really old man doing it. And that's because they don't teach those sort of things anymore because they were considered almost like a servant class. You were guilty. You were very highly specialized. You were highly valued when you got to know you as an individual. Um, but the reverse of that, the principle was nobody valued your gift as an individual. You were just sort of a necessary tradesman. And, the, and a lot of that goes back to you know, feudalism, the aristocracy, the Victorian era where we just... Everybody wanted to be uh, the squire, the lord of the land, you know, uh, the lawyer who's a member of parliament and we just, you know, had his office but had a steady income. He had an endowment. Uh, that's why you uh, see, I think it's in Jane Eyre and all that, of um, the ladies would look for a man of well-breeding and uh, means, meaning he had like 10,000 pounds a year to him. So he didn't have to work for a living. He had money he could supply. So whatever he did was his interest. He didn't have to work. Well, a lot of us laborers, uh, we have to work to survive. And oftentimes our society doesn't afford us the opportunity to use our gifts to actually make, allow us to survive using those. We have to do something else. Um, I worked in finance. I worked previously in actually academia, mental health. I ran mental health programs while I was studying for a PhD in psychology. I was planning on becoming a professor. Uh, that was a long, that was a bit before because at the time they would tell us, it was like, oh, all the older professors are going to retire. Uh, we're going to be needing new psychology professors. Again, this was long before I realized I was autistic and they thought I was just eccentric because uh, I would study cognitive psychology. It would play into that of, oh, you know, you're learning how the brain works and thinking, especially the processes of reading. So my interest of novels 
uh, really lent into my studies of how uh, the brain works while it's reading, how people actually learn to read and what they are behind the scenes doing as they read. And my interest was, why do some people enjoy reading and some people don't? And, and, and you know, go into why do some people find it harder to read as other people find it easier. And it was a very fascinating subject that I wish I had kept into, but I couldn't do it because of various other reasons. Um, one of which was uh, there was very few job prospects because somebody forgot to tell the old professors they should retire. They kept on with their tenure. Uh, so I'd done several jobs. That was the closest I came to using actually my talents. Right now, I'm a writer because I've liked to do that ever since junior high school as well. Uh, but it doesn't pay. I, I will admit I find it difficult to find paying jobs that allow me to write creatively like I want to. I'm working on stories. Uh, I do get into the imposter syndrome where I find it difficult as well as my... Uh, uh, I think it's pathological demand avoidance, PDA, where it's hard to do things um, because I need to do them. It's almost the need to have to get something done is exactly what prevents me from doing them because I want to avoid that. Uh, so it, it, in our society, I think it's difficult to use your gifts to actually make money and earn a living, and that is a thousand times more so for autistic people because our gifts are are so much more intense in my humble opinion uh, than just the, the varied interests of your average neurotypical person we I don't know if we have a lot of I, hopefully I'm not stereotyping I hope we don't have uh, a lot of different interests I have about a handful they're all sort of interrelated. Um, can't stand sports. Don't go into it. Don't like it. Uh, not very physical. Can't move around. Can't do stuff. Find it hard to concentrate on certain things. As well as minutia that takes a lot of attention for extended periods of time. Uh, that makes it hard to do jobs. Don't like numbers. Can't really learn them. Do that. I think accounting is far more complicated than it ever possibly needs to do, as well as law things that make it more complicated than they need to be. Um, and so I worked in finance as well, ironically enough, because I took it as the point of view of uh, finance and economics as a way to study human behavior. Why are people doing things? Because I still find humans fascinating almost as Spock looking at humanity and, and finding their motivations is how I always felt uh, throughout life. But using all of these talents in an actual way, coupled with um, my autistic lack of talent in communications, as well as office politics of discerning what's actually going on, what are people really motivated and trying to do, greatly limited my career potential and prospects and things like that. So I would love to just keep writing uh, and do that because that is one of my special talents. And I think we need to find as a society ways to allow people to really let their talents and individual special interests become 
providers in their life, to, to let them earn money, to give them career potentials in those, rather than just working. Now, people do need to work, don't get me wrong. Uh, you have Somebody has to put the carts away at Target. Somebody has to stock the shelves. Uh, a lot of people, somebody has to work the toll booths, even though they're automated now. Um, somebody has to drive the trains. I'm in Boston. We need different people driving the trains, if you've ever seen how the public transport in Boston works, but that's a different matter. Um, yeah, so uh, I just really wanted to, to know more about what people think of their gifts and how well they're actually able to use this uh, to make a living for themselves. I, I'm not exactly sure how neurotypicals do this because they seem to, uh, to my naive eyes, um, not to actually just work, you know, buckle down, do what they need to do, uh, work at a job, <coughs> and muddle through and do what they like to do uh, on their own time. That's their work-life balance, as it were, is work is what you have to do and life is what you want to do. That seems kind of disappointing and sad to me, but there it is. And I don't know how well we can restructure our economics in our society to better align with what is needed to what people have to offer. The huge and obvious problem with that is the structure of the economy. It is now more so blatantly geared and driven by the needs of... It's not even a class of people. It's it's almost conspiracy theory, amorphous uh, backroom star chamber uh, sort of thing, a cabal of interests... Uh, for what they need to keep industries going and money investment and things like that. Because as I take as an example, um, working from home. Uh, Argue what you will about the merits of COVID shutting down the economy. I personally think it cost us far more than any potential benefit uh, that came from that. Uh, But everybody was managed to try to work from home or a lot of people did, and now uh, companies are saying, you must return back to the office. A lot of company, a lot of work is computer work. It's done like accounting and, uh, or things like that, bookkeeping and stuff is the only ones I can think of, but there are a lot of other topics that do that in an office work that are done on computer, which can now be done remotely. And the powers that be just demand people come back to the office so they can watch what they do, they can go there, and it's very difficult for them to actually justify why that is, why they can't work remotely, but they still demand people come back in the office. And this is how, uh, my the back of my mind, the primary example of how people are controlled and the working environment, and the economics of uh, industry and work are not geared to best utilize people's gifts and time because we must, especially in the United States, must shift and accommodate and change our gifts to what overlords, overseers, bosses, uh, corporate, whatever's demand they do. And they go hand in hand with politics, politicians, politicians, 
uh, are of the same way. They, do, they, I mean, whatever benefit you think you get from government, there's a thousand hoops you have to jump through uh, to even get one tenth of whatever you're promised from this. And they likewise do not benefit your talents whatsoever. If you go in and try to find unemployment, um, especially if you are well-trained, if you have a high education, college degree and things like that, but you find yourself out of work and you go into some job training center or, you know, unemployment office, as you are required to do in order to jump through the hoops to get some unemployment benefits that you actually earned as part of your paycheck, um, you will notice that most of the jobs in training are, again, the labor classes, the labor of, of hard work that have nothing to do with probably, most likely, what you were trained to do. And that's just kind of sad. They People don't work with your gifts. They work with shoving you into a position uh, to fit the needs of the position rather than the needs of your gifts and what you're doing. Uh, this is getting a little off topic, I think, because I really want to learn more about how people are viewing autism and special interests. Because we all do have gifts. We do all have our interests. Uh, autistic people, I think, are just... Um, when I want to say extra special, I do not mean that in the derogatory or diminutive sense I do mean it in its the literal sense of extraordinary, as in unusual and not average, uh, because of our intensity with our special interests. We hyper-focus on it because it is almost enrapturing to us. Whatever your, happen- your special interest, your topic, your gift happens to be, you're involved 100%. Your being is there. You get, as in what, like a master's like Basho or uh, uh, Suzuki, the Zen masters would say, it's like you become Zen. This is who you are. Uh, they always get the sayings because I actually like uh, comparative religion and philosophy and stuff too. Uh, the old saying in Zen is, is like, you know, before enlightenment, gather water, chop wood. After enlightenment, gather water, chop wood. That has many different meanings of, you know, it doesn't really change you. You just become more aware of who you are and you become centered in this moment. You're not worried about the future. You're not regretting the past. You're doing this. But that's kind of what happens when we're indulged in our special gifts. And I don't know if I see that happening in your average neurotypical, no matter how happy they are while they're doing something and playing a game or or whatever it is their special topic is, they just love something. Um, I find it really unusual to to see the person is lost within the subject with whatever that activity is, and that all you're seeing is the activity the joy of that topic just existing, which is a wonderful sight to see. I really wish a lot more people would uh, experience that so that and, and share in it as well as celebrate it when they see it in somebody else. If you see in a topic, an autistic person and they're just going in their special topic and they want to talk about something, just listen to them. Appreciate the joy that they have 
in going through that special topic. And then also, please know that you are, for lack of a better word, because I'm not an overly religious person, blessed to have been the recipient of them sharing this with you. We don't get along well and communicate with people. So if we make that connection where we not only are comfortable to open up and share our special topic with you um, in, in more than just that tentative sense of what we're sharing or we're using it as a vehicle to try and keep a conversation going, something like that. Um, it, it's trying to make us feel less awkward than the unbearable awkwardness of a silence standing next to you. Um, please appreciate that. Please appreciate if we're sharing our joy of a topic with you. Uh, most often, neurotypical people um, will make fun of us for it. You know, what are you talking about? Or what's that got to do with the price of tea in China? As an old saying might go. And nothing. It doesn't. We're just sharing our joy with you. We're sharing our interest with you. Because we're told that's how you make friends. That's how you connect with somebody, is you share something deep and meaningful to you with somebody else, and they normally reciprocate. However, our special interests and gifts are apparently so different that when we share them, a neurotypical person doesn't relate and doesn't share back. That's why when you have a conversation, uh, the typical conversations, which I will admit I've observed when I was teaching psychology classes is you're supposed to say it's like hi my name is X and they say okay my name is Y um, I'm from here the person typically mirrors the conversation we have a hard time doing that um, we learn it as a script and it becomes perfunctory and this is what we say because we actually think okay this is what I'm supposed to say now so if we get to that point where we trust you and we want to share what we love. Like if I'm going around talking about ancient Romans or uh, go over my impressions of, uh, you know, an Ian McEwan book, how I really liked Machines Like Me because it brought up some fascinating topics of what I think an artificial intelligence is going to go through um, as a being. If they start learning sentience, it's going to have to start learning much like every human does unconsciously, is like, why the hell am I still alive? Why don't I just kill myself? What is the point of everything? Um, it's a fascinating book, especially when I compare it to some book of his that I have yet to actually get through. I have to force myself to get through it, even though I like Ian McEwan as a writer. I have to force myself to get through lessons, which seems a trifle self-indulgent, but that's a different matter. If we start getting into that being a level of sharing and topping, and, and topics and, and talking with you, please accept that as the gift that it is most likely intended. Um, we do want to know also your special interests, your gifts. What do you find such pleasurable in life that it touches you to the core of your being and that you really don't want to ever let go of? You want to hold it close to yourself what is that thing and we would like to share that with you because I think autistic people being able to 
I hate to say, objectify situations and being able to be that level removed uh, to see a broader picture, are able to look and see people different from their situations or, or outside of the situations as well as in it. And when we can see that you're enjoying something as opposed to just doing it because you kind of like it or that's what the situation demands, that's, the, that's what the occasion is, um, we want to participate in that. That's our opening. And now, um, I do like the idea that autistic people have our special interests, and we call that, and I've been using that word a lot because I just never bothered to look up in the thesaurus um, any other uh, specialities. I mean, we can be an aficionado of stuff, and I can find all these other $5 words at you, but I'm hoping that you understand what I'm trying to get to. Of We have an intensity that we feel. It is generally focused on certain activities or topics, we reserve that to ourselves. We will retreat into that as a way to protect ourselves from the chaos of an outside world and its muddled of just superficiality and its topics. Um, but when we want to bring you within that world and we want to show you what we think of it and how we appreciate it, um, I would like you to. Uh, appreciate that as well. Just keep that in mind. I know that there's a woman TikToker, a, a girl. I wish I would meet her. She's rather young compared to me, but that's, I mean, still an adult. I'm not odd. Um, but her, and she's autistic and is learning to live on her own um, and is making wonderful strides the last I saw. But her special interest is insects, loves insects, has lots of examples of them. Um, like has them as artwork, almost like the museum with the needles in the shadow boxes and things like that. Knows all the names, the Latin names, all that. It's, it is incredibly impressive. But when you see her talk about these things, you see joy. She goes off and say, like, oh, I love this. And say, I mean, we'll start the bouncing and hitting like Angie, you just smile. And that sort of joy is infectious. And I hate to say that, but the way the world treats well actually people in general uh the world just is really shitty on people and for some reason does not like people to be happy especially in the united states it just makes you it really sort of demands a lot from you and make sure that it just squeezes every little bit out of you uh to meet those demands before it allows you to be happy uh so when we see that sort of joy in somebody you really have to appreciate it and that's why uh, I mention it and do and that's why we want to do stuff but I do know that um, it is a diagnostic criteria so it is something different it is something special um, probably just as a matter of degree from the neural uh, typical person uh, in that we focus on one or two topics and very intensely uh, compared to uh, just passing interests and, and, and casual enjoyment of a lot of things. So that's where we go. That's where I'm circling back to. Um, I don't know how we can change our world to better accommodate autistic people and their special interests. I really wish we could, uh, not just 
for me, selfishly, as a late diagnosed autistic person with my special interests, um, I mean, I, I can't be a curator. <laughs> I don't believe I would love to be um, a writer if I can get over and actually publish and things and, and get around. These are cutthroat uh, industries, however. Um, they just aren't that in high demand. And so uh, there are people who arguably on paper are better qualified or have than me as opposed to better interest. They might do it simply out of perfection, uh, perfunctoriness, or uh, I will give them benefit of the doubt. like they love it just as much as I do. So that's what we've got is I don't know how to make perhaps through computer work and automation we're able to do uh, I think as a means of production and especially food supplies and things and energy supplies um, if we get over the forced scarcity because the planet has enough energy and enough food to literally provide for every person on the planet adequately more than a minimum we do it's a matter of distribution and a matter of the producers and owning of the capital that make the production um, getting what they feel is their uh, proper recompense for the services providing. Um, that's a, a separate almost neo-Marxist sort of uh, topic for a different day. But I would wish that um, we did have like a universal basic income where people could, you know, start to contribute to society according to their special interests. I think a lot more, especially autistic people, will be a lot more accepted uh, and uh, be able to come out and say, this is what I am um, in our world and be able to contribute and be better appreciated. And that's all that we need to do is basically start appreciating each other for uh, our many differences in our many interests. So now that I've gotten into a kumbaya moment, I, I will just say thank you for paying attention. Uh, it was a spur of the moment sort of topic uh, that was prompted by watching other TikToks. It actually was prompted by uh, an article, a review I read of Jody Comer, who is in New York City apparently at the moment. Um, starring in a Broadway play, I would desperately love to go and see and meet her. I would love to meet her, not just because she's an absolutely beautiful woman, but because she's an incredible actress. That Talk about somebody who has um, a special talent, and you can see the joy that they have through the intensity of their talent. Uh, Jodie Comer, who was in uh, Killing Eve, Villeneuve in Killing Eve is probably what she might be best known as. Uh, I think she was also in, I think it was called like The White Princess, where she was um, the Queen Henry II. It was a, a BBC series drama. Wonderful in that as well. You can see the intensity and, and just the, uh, the sheer talent in there. And even though she's acting in the role, you can see and appreciate um, the I was going to say joy in just having them act you know that that's how you get it because there are some actors I won't name them because I don't want to get sued where they're big name they're blockbuster movies and stuff but you see oh they're acting I'm going to go and see this person acting he's acting oh he's acting well 
And I always find that annoying because I don't want to go see them act in a movie. I want to go see the character. And for Jodie Comer, she embodies the characters. You don't see Jodie Comer anymore. You see the character that they create, and it's utterly amazing. So um, got a little off topic on that one because that's where I uh, want to appreciate it. I would really wish to go in uh, New York and see her uh, do that. But uh, that was one of the other inspirations for this little talk and get together is like just the the miracle of talents and then um, how other autistic she's not autistic I don't mean to imply that that I know of um, but we can get that sort of intensity and how we can all appreciate uh, the gifts that we have for each other and share in the world rather than simply arguing over what is different and trying to change, making sure that the world changes to accommodate our interior view of ourselves rather than simply share what we have and appreciate and then get down to, um, uh, I'll leave the rest of my philosophy out of that because I don't want to get too divisive. But thank you for listening. Uh, This is another episode of This Can't Be Autism. Uh, I'm Doug Seibeck. Uh, this is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and hopefully other uh, podcasting platforms. I would appreciate it if you uh, leave a review or at least rate uh, what you think uh, of this podcast. Uh, it is just me. It is just me trying to learn how to do it with my autism. That's why you'll only hear me talking as well as I might figure out how to do something like put in some music background, uh, stuff like that. So if you have... Uh, suggestions for another topic or say an interview or a discussion with somebody, I'd be more than happy to entertain those. And my uh, email address for this is, um, I believe it is this can't be autism, all one word at gmail.com. Feel free to reach me there uh, with any questions or suggestions. And like I said, leave a review. There is, I'd be happy to receive um, just the appreciation, but that's how you can support us as well as reach out and support and follow uh, other autistic uh, creators and personalities. So for this latest episode of This Can't Be Autism, Doug Seibeck, thank you very much, and hopefully we'll talk to you soon.